scripture reading for today is Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone." Let's pray. Our Father, we rest ourselves in your steadfast love. You're the God who made promises to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and his children, to Moses and the people of Israel, to David and the prophets, to Jesus and through Jesus and through the apostles and through your appointed preachers for so many years, and you are the God who has been faithful to every single one of your promises. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on us. We will not come to the end of the steadfast love of the Lord in our lifetime or in anyone's lifetime. Your steadfast love is eternal, our Father, and we rest ourselves in that. We rest ourselves now not in our perceptions of things, but in the strength of your promises and the promise of your presence with us. We rest ourselves in you, our Lord. And we pray that you would come now and speak to us by the word. Lord, I've been meditating on these things for so many hours this week, and I've prepared my remarks and all of that, but the truth is each of us needs food from heaven, from you. And so I pray that you would come and feed us now. If my words are part of what that means, then amen. And if you would feed your people uh, in another way by your Holy Spirit, then amen. But please come, Father, feed us now. Exalt yourself in our eyes and cause us to gladly submit our lives to you. In the mighty, the merciful, the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, in Hebrews chapter 1, the author exalts the name of Jesus to a very, very high place. In fact, the, the highest place that anyone could imagine. Without doubt, without a close second, the most high place. And the way that he does this is by unveiling to us something of the beauty and the enormity of the being of Jesus. So the first thing he wants us to focus on is who Jesus is in his fundamental nature. He's trying to unveil our eyes to see more and more and more of this Jesus that we know but probably not in fullness. And then on the basis of that, he wants us to understand the standing of Jesus, the high place of Jesus, a a place so high that even the angels of God bow down and worship him, and they will do so forever and ever and ever. With this breathtaking vision in mind, the author moves on in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, as we saw last week or the week before, whichever, I honestly can't remember off the top of my head. 
Isn't that bad I'm preaching Sunday in and Sunday out? I can't remember what the heck I'm preaching from week to week, though. At some point, we looked at 2, 1 to 4, and we saw that the author was applying his vision of Jesus to daily life. And the reason he did that is because he knows that the vision of chapter 1 is not just a vision. He knows that the the facts that are revealed to us about Jesus in chapter 1, that are facts that are true to who Jesus actually is, They're not merely facts. These are truths about Jesus and they have implications for our everyday life. And so, in love, the author wrote to the people and and, and mildly rebuked them and encouraged them to give their full and earnest attention to Jesus lest they drift away from him. He warned them that even if they did drift away from Christ, they would never escape the reach of Christ, the, the justice of Christ, the judgment of Christ, the loving wisdom of Christ, because he is the king of kings, he is Lord over all, and his law rules the land. And so he wanted them to know not the judgment of Jesus, but the soul-satisfying enrichment of being near to Jesus. The invitation of Hebrews, beloved, is that we can be in an intimate relationship with this Jesus of chapter 1. He's not just great, but he's also very gracious, and he wants to draw near to us. And the author wants us to draw near to him, and more so the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write. And so he rebuked us in love, reminding us, give, give way to the things of the world. Get, get them far away from you. Come out of the world and give your full and earnest attention to the glorious Jesus Christ who loves you and gave himself up for you. With this Warning having been issued, the author now returns in chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, to his train of thought. And what I mean is he continues to compare Jesus to the angels, and he continues to exalt Jesus over the angels. But now he has a, a slightly distinct aim. It's a related aim, but a distinct one. It's an aim that will cause every believing soul that sees what he's trying to display here to explode with praise. And I really mean that. It's not, not just preacherly talk. I'm telling you, all week long, as I have seen the glory of what the author is trying to reveal in chapter 2, I have just bowed myself before Jesus so many times this week and said, Lord, you are great. You are so great. That's what he wants for us. And so now the author desires to show us how the present glory and honor and exaltation and dominion of Jesus came about in a very unexpected way. It came about through incarnation, through humiliation, through suffering, through death, through triumph over death. Jesus is the one who's highly exalted above all other things, and he will be so forever and ever. And Jesus is the one who humbled himself and brought himself lower than anybody could imagine. And this fact is made all the greater in light of the exalted person that he is. The unexpected and even unimaginable combination of the exaltation of Jesus and the humiliation of Jesus put together in combination, that's what explodes in a display of the glory of Christ, beloved. The fullness of the glory of Christ is seen not only in his exalted majesty and not only in his humble suffering, but it's in the eternal relationship of these two things that the glory of Christ is seen. 
I don't know what the two things are. I, there, maybe there's not just two things that come together to make an, a nuclear bomb explode. But whatever those two things are in Jesus, they are his exalted majesty and his humility. And when they come together, the glory of God radiates into heaven and earth like nobody could imagine. This God we worship, beloved, is very high and he's very humble. He's very great and he's very gracious. He's very mighty and he's very merciful. He's a truth teller and he's unbelievably tender. He's very powerful, and yet he's oh so patient. He's very strong, and yet he's utterly submissive. And it's in the combination of these things in Christ that the glory of God is displayed. And I'm just telling you as one of your shepherds that I'm leading you in the way you should go. Meditate on these things, beloved. Meditate on the highness of Christ and the humility of Christ, and God will open your eyes to things that will literally cause you to explode with worship. So with this in mind, let me just say a word. I want to take just a second and help you understand the pattern of chapters 1 and 2. Because as I told you before, Hebrews is not just haphazardly thrown together. It's intricately woven together. And even the way that it's constructed is meant to display things to us about Jesus. And so in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we see sort of his opening statement. And if you read it carefully in your own time later, you'll see both seeds of the exaltation and the humility of Jesus there. And then in chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, the author's really focusing heavily on the exaltation of the glory of Christ. If I can skip to chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, there he's really seriously focusing on the humiliation and the suffering of Christ and his identification with humankind. And in between the exaltation and the humiliation stands these four or five verses. Hebrews chapter 5, verses, or chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 that kind of combine the two. We see elements of his exaltation, elements of his humiliation, and these verses, 2, 5 to 9, are trying to connect. They're trying to link these two glories of Christ for us so that we can see the fullness of who Christ is. So in the beginning of Hebrews, highly exalted. In the end of chapter 2, he's greatly humbled. And in the middle, there's these linking verses that are helping us connect the humility and the exaltation. They're not, in fact, two things in one way, but they're one thing. They're, they are together the display of the glory of Christ. And so today what I want to do is focus on these transitional verses. And my aim is not just to understand stuff. My aim is to help us behold the glory of Jesus as he is, that we might gladly surrender to Jesus as he is. I've just been praying all week long that we, through his word, would actually encounter him today. When just think thoughts about him, we'd actually see his glory. And obviously, that's only something God can provide, right? Only God can unveil our eyes and let us see the truth of who Jesus is. But he can do that. And I'm praying that he will do that. So look with me at verse 5. The author starts out there. He says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. In the Old Testament, there are some passages, several of them actually, that seem to teach us that God has assigned angels ruling authority in this age and on this earth. So for many centuries, the rabbis of the Jews and even teachers of the Christian church have looked to texts like Deuteronomy 32.8 and said that that text means that God has given ruling authority to angels on this earth. 
And then this becomes more explicit in Daniel chapter 10 and 12. And many of you are familiar with this passage. Remember when Daniel was praying and the angel finally comes to deliver the answer and he says, I would have been here sooner, but I was off fighting with the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. You remember that? And so there we see an angel actually having authority over Persia. We see an angel having authority over Greece. And in chapter 12, verse 1 of Daniel, we see an angel, Michael, having authority over Israel. In the New Testament, the same idea is there, but on the negative side, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Satan himself is called the prince of the power of the air. That means that he has been granted a measure of dominion on this earth. Now, the earth doesn't belong to him. The earth belongs to the Lord, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But in his power, and for whatever his reasons are, he's allowed Satan a certain measure of dominion. And in chapter 6 of of Ephesians, in, in verse 12, it says that when you and I are fighting spiritual battles, we have to have wisdom here. We're not fighting against one another. You are not my enemy, and I am not your enemy. We're fighting against spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. In other words, they have a a kind of measure of authority on the earth that certainly will one day be snatched away. But in this age, the angels do have some authority. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, in the world to come, all the terms are going to change. And the world to come will not be subject to angels. And so the question quickly becomes, well, if it's not subject to angels, then to whom will it be subject? And this leads him to to a quote in in the following verses. The author begins his answer with this sort of famous introduction. He says in the ESV, it has been testified somewhere, or the NASB translates it a little bit more literally. It says, but one has testified somewhere saying. I don't want you to take that to mean that the author of Hebrews didn't know what he was quoting. He didn't know the location of the verse because that's not what's happening at all. In fact, it would be just the opposite. He knew it so well and his people knew it so well that he could just say something like, the Lord is my shepherd, And every one of you would know that that text comes from what? Psalm 23, right? So he's like, in our day, black preachers do this all the time. All the time. I went to a a school that was almost all African Americans. I studied preaching under African Americans. And so I heard them do this kind of thing all the time. You know, like, it seems like I remember somebody saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to God but by me. And when a black preacher says that, everybody in the room knows he's talking about John 14, 6. And everybody knows he's talking about Jesus. So when he says, when the author of Hebrews says, well, someone somewhere has testified, he he knows exactly what he's talking about. David, Psalm 8. One more thing, this word testified, it's a very strong word. In fact, it's most often translated in our New Testament as, as solemn testimony. So don't get the idea that he's just plucking a verse out of somewhere. Here's what he's saying. He's just made this claim that the next world will not be subject to, to, to the angels, but instead he found this place in the scripture where solemn and eternal and unshakable testimony is given. It's, it's kind of like saying again, God has spoken and he will not change his mind. What I'm about to quote for you, pay careful attention, this is serious business, it's a word that's been granted from the Spirit of God to the people of God, it will never be reversed. Someone somewhere has solemnly testified saying this, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
With that, would you please turn with me to Psalm 8? We're going to probably spend, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes there. I want to read it in its original context, and we'll come back to Hebrews and try to see how the author is interpreting it over there. The first thing I want to point out about this psalm, you'll notice by looking at verses 1 and verse 9, that they start and it starts and ends with the exact same words. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a Hebrew poetic device, and actually in other languages we do it too. And it simply means this psalm is about this. <laughs> and in this case, this psalm is about the glory of God. It is all about the glory of God. Whatever the particular components of this psalm are, make no mistake that this psalm is about the display of the glory of God in all of the earth and, in fact, above the earth, as we'll see in a moment. So just keep that in mind. This psalm's about the glory of God. On that basis, David makes a bold assertion in verse 1, and he says that God has set his glory above the heavens. So what does that mean? It means that the most valuable and important thing in all of existence and in the mind of God is the glory of God. The glory of God is exalted above all of life. The glory of God is the ultimate meaning of life. All things were created by Him and for Him. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. His glory is the beginning of all things. His glory is the end of all things. And so when David says that the Lord has set his glory above the heavens, what he's trying to do is say to us human beings, listen, imagine the greatest, most exalted, most glorious, most impossible thing you can imagine, namely the stars and the heavens, vast as they are, and realize that God has set his glory above those things. One of the things the sky is intended to do to us human beings is strike our hearts with awe. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies are preaching day by day by day by day. There's something greater than you out there. Have awe. Worship. Humble yourselves. The heavens are declaring the glory of God and the skies are proclaiming the work of his hands and David said, above it all, God has set his glory. Nothing on this earth is more important than the glory of God. Nothing. Now if you were David and you had just written verse 1 and you wanted nothing more than to exalt the glory of God as highly as you can, what would you write next? What would be the choice of words that you would go to? I would not have gone where David went. Here's how the inspired author by the Holy Spirit said, he said, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I'm reading this at full speed, I just kind of want to say, push pause. David, excuse me, I don't understand. God is great and mighty and his glory is above the heavens so what does this have to do with babies and infants and how can someone so great seek to use something so weak and small and vulnerable not just to display his glory but to defeat his enemies right I promise you that if we were in some kind of physical battle with another tribe in Elk River or something like that we would not say all right everybody gather the babies (laughs) let's arm them and send them out We might frighten the other people to death. They might think, these people are crazy. We're going to 
get out of here. But somehow or other, David thinks this makes sense. In my mind, I'm like, David, this doesn't make sense. But he says back, oh, but it makes perfect sense. Because our Father loves, he delights to use the weak things of the world to display his strength and the foolish things of the world to display his wisdom. And so when Jesus went into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry and came there to defeat Satan and sin and death and all of that, he's walking through the temple courts and who is it that's yelling out to him? It's the little children saying, Hosanna to the name of the Lord. Praised be the name of the Lord, the Son of David, the Mighty One. He has come. The enemies of Jesus were not happy with this at all. The chief priests and the scribes rebuked him and said, Jesus... Don't you know what's happening here? Aren't you listening to what these children are saying? Don't you know that no mere mortal man should receive speech like that without rebuking those who give it? And Jesus just looked at them as I meditated on this yesterday. I could just see his piercing gaze and yet his loving eyes looking upon them and saying, yes, yes, I hear their praises. And haven't you ever read the scripture? Haven't you seen where it says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength? Oh, chief priests and scribes, listen to me. God does not need your strength to bolster his strength. God loves to use weakness to display his strength. God loves to use humility to display his might. God loves to call us to be like little children and stand in the temple and say, Hosanna to the Son of David, rather than analyzing and analyzing and criticizing and all of that. Oh, the glory of a God who's so exalted and yet so willing to use the weak things of this world. And so with this sort of unexpected and glorious contrast in mind, David now, I imagine him sitting on a hill. I don't know if that's where he was sitting, but certainly I imagine him out in a night sky and the stars are filled and the moon is up and he's gazing upon what he sees and he's having wonder about the things that God has made. He's meditating on the stars and pondering the glory of the moon and he knows that they have been put in place by God. He knows that somehow he is being confronted with and encountering the God of the universe. This isn't just a scientific display. This is a revelation of the being of God, and David knows it. He feels it. He feels the might of God, the greatness of God, and the glory of God. And he says that God put all these things in place, how? With his fingers. Don't miss that language, beloved. He didn't say that God did this with his strong and mighty hand as though God had to actually exert himself to create the universe. Have you ever thought about that? God didn't have to go to create the universe. He just spoke and it happens. God holds this vast universe in his hands like it's a delicate flower and he created it all like this, like a craftsman. Just amazing. And for David, this exalts the glory of God so infinitely high that he can hardly take it in. And so with this greatness of God in his heart that's just absolutely gripping him, I can feel it as I meditate upon it. He's just gripped by the glory of God. Now he lowers his gaze and he considers the smallness and the seeming insignificance of human beings. But what's amazing him is not that God is able to create such massive things and such microscopic things, 
What's amazing him is that this massive and glorious God would care at all about human beings on this earth. I don't know if any of you look at the Hubble site.org or whatever it is now. It's worth a try. When you look and consider the vastness of this universe, it will make you feel very, very, very small. And it will make you wonder how God is able to find us. It will make you wonder that God cares for us and this is what's in David's soul. What is man that you remember him is what the Hebrew literally means. What is man that you have given your heart toward him? David can't believe that this high and exalted God would care for infants and babies like us. And so then he's pondering the deeper and deeper still and he sees three particular ways that God has put his blessing upon humanity given out in the rest of these verses. First of all, God made human beings in his image just a little bit lower than the angels. Second of all, God crowned human beings with glory and honor, which is stunning given the glory of who God is and the the exalted nature of who God is. And then third, God gave human beings dominion over the work of his hands, and he put all things under his feet, which David defines clearly as all sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, and whatever other things are in the sea. Do those last couple verses... Does that pique anything in your mind? Any other text come to your mind when you hear this? What came to my mind when I meditated on this this week pretty instantly was Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Here was the promise of God made to Adam before they were created, but this is the call of God upon humankind. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. As David considered the glory of the heavens which God had made and much more the glory of the God who made them. And then as he considered the high and exalted place that God had given to humankind upon this earth, he was quite simply breathtaking by the contrast between the two. He's breathtaking. And so he can't help but in verse 9 say it again, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how your glory is displayed by the things that you have made and your willingness to be humble and relate to little ones like us, to babies, to infants like us. O Lord, our Lord, how the reality of who you are has filled my soul with praise and how I pray that it will fill the souls of many with praise. Just imagining David calling out, praying to the Lord. Now, before we go back to Hebrews, I want to bring more, one more vital thing about this psalm to your attention. Extremely important. David knew the scriptures very, very well. He considered Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and probably Judges as well to be more precious than all of the gold in the world. And this is a king talking who had his hands on a lot of gold. And he considered it to be sweeter than the finest honey in all the world. And certainly as a king, he could have gotten his hands on anything sweet that he wanted. 
He was not a man who read the Word of God because he was under obligation to do so. Rather, he was a man who devoured the Word of God because he delighted to do so. He knew the Bible backward and forward. Read the Psalms carefully. You'll see that this is true. And so David knew well that the ideal state of Psalm 8, about which he had just written, was not in fact yet manifest on the earth. He knew that God had commissioned Adam and his race to have dominion over this earth, but that Adam had sinned and given up his place of dominion. David knew that through the scripture. David knew that through experience. And then David knew that the, the, the great men of God like Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Samuel, and probably others had all failed in various ways and had not succeeded at restoring man to full fellowship with God and to their rightful place of dominion. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 was as yet unfulfilled in the days of David, and I have no doubt whatsoever that he was consciously aware of that fact. Given that this fact was most certainly central to his mind as he pondered the heavens and pondered humankind, I conclude that he was consciously writing about another Adam who would come. He was consciously writing about someone who would rise up and lead humanity, who would restore us to our rightful place, and who would fulfill Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I don't know how clearly David saw him, And I don't know how how much detail David knew about him, but I have no doubt in my mind that David saw a second Adam coming as the fulfillment of Psalm 8 because he looks at what he just wrote and he knows this is not the fact in life. Human beings are not in dominion over everything and he knows it. And so again, I feel that he's writing this psalm as a prophetic psalm and even I would dare say as a messianic psalm. And so with that, let's turn back to Hebrews now, and I want to say a few things about what's going on there. So in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. I want to stop there. In verse 8, the author of Hebrews now begins to interpret the quote, okay? And so, the way that he does it is he's now drawing our minds back to Psalm 110.1, which says that God put all things underneath the feet of Jesus. So we know that this language of put underneath the feet is about Jesus. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 8, is now trying to help us understand something about the extent of his dominion. He says there's literally not a single thing that was left outside the control of Jesus. Not a single thing. The point that the author is making here is that the only thing Jesus does not command is God the Father himself. And we learn that, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, 27. Everything will be under the feet of Jesus except God the Father. But that's no demotion for Jesus because he is the exact imprint of the being of God the Father. And he is the radiance of the glory of God the Father. And he gladly submits to God the Father. So the point here is that outside of God the Father... Jesus has absolute dominion over everything. Nothing will escape his control. But this raises a problem 
because even in the days of the author, there's, there's just, there's just a, a contradiction with real life when they look out into the world and everything is not actually subjected. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. In other words, the theological truth that the author of Hebrews has been trying to highlight since chapter 1 has not yet come into fulfillment, and it seems even to be contradicted by our daily lives. I've actually even, I'm just remembering some conversations I've even had with some of you, where we're sitting there saying, if Jesus is so powerful, how come so many people hate him? You're struggling with the very thing that's being struggled with here. If he has dominion, why doesn't he have dominion? F.F. Bruce says that Jesus does not yet command the willing allegiance of all, and he's right about that. Atheists, Muslims, Mormons, secular humanists, and even some who name the name of Jesus Christ actually deny Christ. They ignore Christ. They demean Christ. They vehemently and sometimes even violently oppose Christ and oppose those who love him. That does not look like subjection, so what are we to do with this? How are, how are we to understand the truth claims about Jesus? that he is absolutely in control. Well, first of all, I think we have to understand that the present rebellion against Jesus is not because of his inability to subject people. It's because of his mercy and graciousness. The time is not yet full. Peter said, I think it was in Second Peter, that the reason Jesus hasn't returned yet is because he's being merciful and he's giving people time to repent. So his lack of dominion, actual dominion over all the peoples of the earth at present isn't because of inability. It's actually because of mercy. Jesus is like the Joshua of old who's marching through the promised land of this earth. He's going nation by nation by nation and plucking out of every nation some people as worshipers for himself. And as he does that through his church, he does it under the banner of the promises of Psalm 8 and Psalm 110 that the Father will put everything underneath his feet. Beloved, that is a legal declaration from the throne of God that no one will ever be able to oppose or overturn. Believe me, Jesus is marching toward the day of actual realized dominion. For now, we're living in the sort of already not yet phase. But the day will come when he has dominion over all things. And in the meantime, what do we see of Jesus? Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Who are we talking about now? Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I want to make four comments about this, and then I'll bring the message to a close. First of all, this is the first mention of the actual name of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. He's already been in every word, but now his name is mentioned. And among other things, this tells me, for me, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that all of these verses so far have been talking about Jesus. I know that some of you are in a study with Kay Arthur, and she takes a different point of view than this. I really respect Kay Arthur a lot, but I think she's wrong on on this point. I think chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, every word is about Jesus. And I think that Psalm 8 is ultimately about Jesus in the sense that he is the second Adam who has come to bring us all into the place of fulfilling Genesis 1, 26 through 28. In fact, he's the only one who could come and do that. So ultimately, all of this is about Jesus. That, for me, is the key interpretive point, the name of Jesus in verse 9. Second thing, 
regardless of the lingering rebellion in the world toward Jesus, here's what we see in Jesus. We see that Jesus has presently been crowned with glory and honor by God the Father. This is not a future event, beloved. This isn't a promise of things to come for Christ. Right now, right in this moment and forever and ever, he stands before the Father, highly favored, wearing a crown of crowns, a crown of glory and a crown of honor. No matter how the nations rage against Jesus, no matter how long the people's plot in vain, they will not change the mind of God. He has sworn and he will not change his mind. And at the end of the day, beloved, the opinion of God is the only opinion that matters. Some of you may have seen recently, I I posted some things on my Facebook page about the emergent church, just some new resources then, and it just kind of re-brought up all of the concerns that I have about that movement, so I pasted some stuff. Well, one of my friends is actually goes to an emergent church, he goes to Doug Paget's church, been trying to lovingly speak into his life over, over the last year or so that I've known him, and he's pretty upset with me right now. And he calling me hateful, he said to me at one point, he said, it must be hard being so righteous like you. And I, I tried to just say back to him, listen, man, it's not about whether I'm righteous or not righteous. It's about Jesus is either who he said he is or he's not who he said he is. And if he's not who he said he is, he's nothing. And I'm done being a Christian. That's what this is really about. But, beloved, people, even in the name of Jesus, are raging against Jesus. What I want to tell you is that no matter what their rage, no matter what their plots, they will not succeed. God has spoken and will not change his mind. He has presently crowned Christ with glory and honor. It is a fact of life outside of ourselves that will always be true. Third thing, we see that the reason Jesus was in fact crowned with such glory and honor is because of his suffering and death. And if you'll stop to, to take that in, it'll really take your breath away. I think in our flesh, we would assume, and, and actually Jesus' disciples assumed, that when he came to this earth, he was going to take it by storm, right? They thought he would array his forces and they would bring up swords and they would take nation by nation by nation and establish the kingdom of God on the earth. But instead of coming in that kind of arrogant power, Jesus came in the weakness of suffering. It's it's really amazing when you think about who Jesus is and how exalted he is that he would actually empty himself and subject himself to suffering. But this is the way of Jesus. This is the way that he vindicates his glory through the mouths of babies and through the weakness of suffering. And he does this because he delights to display his strength through weakness. As the second Adam He came to absorb the wrath of God and reverse the curse of sin that through him we might come into the fulfillment of what God has made us to be. Fourth and final thing. Why would Jesus Christ, the glory of God, so eloquently exalted in chapter 1, why would he subject himself to suffering like this? Why would he seek exaltation through humility? Who would do it that way? Well, the author of Hebrews answers like this. He says, so that... By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus humbled himself in order to glorify God by manifesting the grace of God toward sinners. When you think about the humility of Jesus, you need to think this is a display of the mercy of God toward sinners like us. That's what this is about. He humbled himself to reveal the glory of God. Jesus chose to taste with his own mouth 
the bitterness of death and all of that means so that in him you and I could taste the fullness of life. And if he did not do this, beloved, there would be no hope for humankind. There would be no path to life. There would be no salvation. There would be no restoration to the created order. There would be no fulfillment of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. There would be only death, destruction, and judgment. And as John Calvin wrote in his commentary, he said this was done through the grace of God, the grace of God the Father. For the cause of redemption was the infinite love of God towards us, through which it was that he spared not even his own Son. And so it is precisely because of the willingness of Jesus to suffer, especially in light of who he is, that God has crowned him with glory and honor, and he will be most exalted forever and ever and ever. It's precisely because of his willingness to suffer that every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess to him that he is the Lord, that he is the head of humanity, that he is the second Adam, that he is the fulfillment of all the promises of God to us and through us. And all these things will be to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, the fullness of the glory of Jesus is seen not only in his exalted majesty and not only in his humble suffering, but in the eternal combination between these two things. This God we worship is very high and he's very humble. He's very great and he's very gracious. He's very mighty and he's very merciful. He's utterly truthful and surprisingly tender. He's very powerful and very patient. He's infinitely strong and yet completely submitted to God. This is Jesus, beloved. And he's very great. He's very glorious. And I pray again that our Father will give us eyes to behold his glory and hearts to submit to his will. I pray that the Lord will help us to see something of who Jesus is and what he's done so that we will gladly follow in his way for certainly he is the way, the truth, and the life. He tested tasted death for us that we might taste life in him. He drank the bitter water for us that we might have living water in him. He for us tasted manna and quail that we might feast at his father's table forever and ever and ever. So I just want to close by encouraging you to go home today turn off your televisions, turn off your phones and meditate on something eternal. Take Hebrews 2, 5 to 9, and meditate long, rich, hard, deep. Let God open your eyes to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, I pray that you would woo us nearer and nearer and nearer to yourself now. Lord, I've spoken the words that I had on my heart to speak, and now I give this offering into your hands, and I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would draw my heart closer to yours and draw our hearts closer to yours, that we would love you more than the things of this world and the things of this flesh, that we would love you more than all, that we would give our full and earnest attention to you gladly from our hearts, that no one would compel us from the outside, but God would compel us from the inside. Come to me, my beloved. Come out of the world and come to me. Oh, Father, let us hear the cry of your heart, I pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.